Thank you, Naomi. <clears throat> uh, well, uh, this morning uh, we begin a new series uh, of sermons, a four-part series uh, on church history. Since uh, 2017, I've done a short church history series every year. Uh, so before going any further, it might be useful to re review why we look at church history uh, at all. Because what we're going to do this morning is abnormal. Uh, what's normal for us is to read the Bible together and to talk about that rather than church history. So why church history? Well, when people enroll at Bible college, they know that they'll be studying the Bible a lot and they know that they'll be studying theology a lot. But they might not have foreseen that they'll also be studying church history a lot. Uh, they may uh, not feel, perhaps, as I did, terribly excited at that prospect. They might imagine, as I did, that the subject includes a lot of dry, stuffy, boring stuff about church buildings. <laughs> but for many, the great shock of Bible college is how incredibly fascinating and useful the study of church history actually is. Church history teaches us essentially why, the think, why we think the way that we do, why we do the things that we do. Church history strengthens our faith through the example, witness, and testimony of saints of bygone era. And church history shows us where we are by showing us where we've come from. And church history, hopefully, stops us from endlessly making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, it's perhaps for this reason that some of the brightest Christian minds that I know personally have PhDs not in Bible studies or in theology, but actually in church history. Uh, so this year, I'd like to focus on the Age of Reason, roughly the 1600s and 1700s. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be working through uh, this, this period in history. We're going to be thinking about the birth of the modern mind, the birth of something called evangelicalism, working out what that is, the rise of denominations, and how all of these things have influenced contemporary Western culture. The Age of Reason is sometimes referred to as the Age of Enlightenment, which is not really a very good title at all. The Age of Reason is a much better title, a period where people fell in love with reason. There are lots of good ways of making decisions, but reason is just one of them. But this is an age where people fell in love with reason. And it's saw the birth of what we would call the modern mind, or the modern worldview. Now, just to be clear, we don't live in the modern world. Not anymore, it's gone. Uh, to be technical, we don't live in the modern world, nor in a post-modern world, but actually in a post-post-modern world. All traditional cultures, on the other hand, in the past and today, all traditional cultures are pre-modern. A pre-modern world 
sees the cosmos as spiritual first, material or physical second. It is the spiritual realm where true power resides, where authority resides, where explanatory power comes from. In the pre-modern world, priests and magicians rule. Uh, the example I routinely use when seeking to explain pre-modern versus modern worldviews is the hypothetical example of lightning striking a church steeple. We've already sung this morning that God directs the lightning. So then imagine that the cross on top of this church got struck by lightning during a storm and that lightning uh, strike started the fire, whether or not there was a lightning rod in place. I think there is a lightning rod in place. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Nick. That's great. But imagine that fire then destroying the entire building. Uh, if you Google, by the way, church struck by lightning, or indeed if you Google pastor struck by lightning, <laughs> you'll discover that it's not a particularly rare event. <laughs> But with respect to such circumstances, where does explanatory power reside? How do we understand such an event and what gives it meaning? To the modern mind, the material, physical, scientific, evidence-based and experimental approach-based uh, uh, approach that has the authority to give meaning. A, a lightning strike is a massive discharge of atmospheric static electricity, a flow of electrons, uh, plasma technically, uh, that will seek, uh, the, not fire, but plasma, different state of matter, um, that plasma will seek the path of the least electrical resistance and on that basis is likely to find the highest point in the district and the highest point on a building. Uh, the amount of energy involved explains the fire, the fire explains the damage. To the pre-modern mind, meaning would be found elsewhere. Is this the wrath of God? The judgment of God now visited upon his people? Does this event evidence God's displeasure with his priest? Or is this the result of a satanic curse or hex? So then, to understand the modern mind in contrast to the pre-modern mind, you simply reverse the equation. It is the, in the modern mind, it is the physical realm, that which is sensible. In other words, that which can be rendered sensible, that which, uh, by, by which I mean that, that which we can appraise with our five senses, sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste. It is the material world where true power, authority, and explanatory power reside. Typically, the scientist is the new priest, the high priest science being where explanatory power resides. And above all, the modern mind loves reason. Or to define reason in modern terms, common sense. To the modern mind, any attempt to explain by way of reference to spirituality, to the so-called supernatural, or to religious texts, any such attempt is superstition. Spirituality is superstition to the modern mind because all such revelation to the modern mind is 
untestable. In terms of getting a feel, if you, if you want to get a feel for the contrast between pre-modern thinking and modern thinking, there are at least two really good films out there worth seeing, and they're both set in the 1930s. One in America, the other in uh, Britain. Uh, in Cold Comfort Farm, set in rural England, Miss Flora Post, played by Kate Beckinsale, saves the day by bringing her no-nonsense, common-sense approach to an intensely superstitious, pre-modern, ignorant inhabitants of Cold Comfort Farm. Anyone here seen Cold Comfort Farm? But many times, that's right. Well, you know, there, there are always stark adders at Cold Comfort. There's always stark adders at Cold Comfort Farm. The film is a classic British comedy uh, from the early 1990s and, in, and includes uh, Joanna Lumley and a young Stephen Fry. In O oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Ulysses Everett McGill, played by George Clooney, likewise utilizes a common sense pragmatism to save and guide his two sidekick friends, caught as they are in religious superstitions. Baptism. You guys really are dumber than a bag of hammers. He saves them from religious superstitions and guides them towards enlightened freedom, overcoming the obstacles in their way. When it comes to modernist sensibilities, you might also think of the character of Spock from the sci-fi franchise Star Trek. Spock is the science officer, please note, the science officer on board the USS Enterprise, boldly going where no man has gone before. As a Vulcan-human hybrid, Spock is a creature of pure logic, of reason, in other words despising emotions and feelings as mere passions that lead to violent, irrational actions, Spock constantly saves the day by doing that which is rational and logical, a life worked out by reason and reason alone. Fun fact, did you know that Spock was considered in the 1960s to be a major sex symbol? <laughs> Tall, dark, and handsome in an exotic way, calm, wise, and soft-spoken, yet authoritative. Thousands of young girls considered him to be the ideal focus of their erotic fantasies. In the 1960s, Star Trek was popular, but Spock was a rock star. Well, what brought about this titanic revolution from pre-modern to modern thinking. Many things, and some of you indeed may understand certain things at much greater depth than me, but, but two things possibly at a superficial level we can examine now, two things uh, are, are really important ingredients into this revolution. Firstly, a huge amount of disgust and revulsion at what looked like fanatical religious zealotry what we would call today religious fundamentalism on both sides of the Reformation debate. The English and European Reformations led to many religious wars, rebellions, 
and persecutions. Indeed, uh, the English Reformation, for example, during the time of Henry VIII, Mary Tudor, Edward VI, and even into Elizabeth I's reign, uh, that story is, it is in many ways a story of Catholics burning Protestants, Protestants burning Catholics, Catholics burning Catholics, and not infrequently, Protestants burning Protestants. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, whom we continue to correctly celebrate as the chief architect of the theology of the Anglican Church and of the Anglican Prayer Book in particular, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer was a convinced Protestant, but he did not allow himself the freedom to disagree with the king. To disagree with the monarch was treason. They lived in an age where freedom of religious belief could barely be imagined. As Christians of whatever persuasion obtained positions of power, they routinely used that power to compel conformity to the truth as they saw it, albeit Catholic, Lutheran, or Reformed. Security was to be found in everyone believing the same thing. And allowing individuals to differ because of conscience, that was anathema, an intolerable idea, an affront to God-ordained authority, God-ordained authority of bishops and kings. It was a recipe for mayhem and anarchy, literally. Anarchy meaning no head. A, a quick diversion, um, by the way, is that all of the things that people consider to be the good things of a modern liberal democracy, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of association, freedom of loyal opposition, all of those things are products of the modern mind. They are inherently good things to modern people but self-evidently evil things to both pre-modern people and post-post-modern people. Pre-modern and post-modern minds actually share that view, that those things are evil rather than good. Returning to the years of the Reformation, uh, the uh, English Civil War, the persecution of the French Huguenots, the 30 years war in Germany, so much blood spilt in the name of religion. Horror forced a rethink. The, six, the um, um, 17th and 18th centuries also saw the invention of the modern discipline of science. Science, or perhaps more accurately, the scientific method, came into existence uniquely in Western Europe at a certain time at this time. All human cultures have technology of one sort or another, and some ancient cultures were technologically sophisticated, but they didn't have science. Science is a unique invention, uniquely of Western Europe during this time, the uh, uh, European Renaissance. And science owes its existence to theology in three, two, possibly three ways. Firstly, science inherited from theology 
the working methodology of comparing an idea to an established reality by way of evidence. In theology, you come up with your doctrine and then you compare your doctrine to the Bible to see how well the evidence fits your idea, your doctrine. Uh, you're comparing it with an established reality. The scientific method is the theological method applied to the natural world. Secondly, science inherited from theology impartiality. It's not about the personality or the position of the person advocating the idea. It's about whether it's true or not when compared to that established reality based on the evidence. Popes could be wrong, kings could be wrong, but telescopes could not be wrong. The observations they provide might be misunderstood, but they didn't lie. Science is when ideas fail or flourish on the basis of observational evidence, not the position or the power of the one advocating the idea. When an idea fails or flourishes based upon the position or power of the one advocating the idea, that's called politics. A third thing, faith. You need faith to be a scientist. Um, one of my uh, young nephews, um, a, a dear, dear boy, um, and a thoughtful lad, he has trouble with mathematics. His parents, uh, teaching and tutoring him mathematics, recently uncovered part of the trouble that their son has with mathematics. Um, they taught him on one day that two plus two equals four. The next day, they themselves were puzzled to discover that their son was no longer able to calculate the answer to the problem of two plus two. They protested, but we, we did this sum yesterday. What was the answer yesterday? Four, the boy replied. So what's the answer today? Well, it was four yesterday, but how do I know that's still true today? That, that's not a kid who thinks too little. That's a kid who thinks too much. <laughs> the ancient world was actually caught in a similar quandary. It was capable of tremendous intellectual achievement. Uh, literature and art, Greek philosophy, Arabic mathematics, uh, Egyptian pyramids, architecture and metallurgy. But the ancient world was incapable of conceiving of an experiment. It was incapable of conceiving of the experimental method. Why? Because, well, indeed, the world was obviously, you know, we all have the same observation, the world can be random and chaotic. There was no system of thought whereby the outcome of an experiment on one day would be expected to be identical to the outcome of that same experiment repeated on another day or in another place. Theology bequeathed science faith in a rational universe created by a rational God. Perhaps the one truest foundation and pillar of the scientific method is the idea of repeatability.
I can repeat your experiment and so test your observations because this is a rational rather than irrational universe. Um, what science also needed was logic. It didn't get that from theology. Uh, it got logic from the ancient Greeks. Inductive and deductive logic. Logic was needed so that conclusions were based logically on observations so that, like theology, science was coherent and without internal contradictions. But methodology, impartiality, faith, three of the four vital ingredients came from theology. So then, the early pioneers of science shook the foundations of the thinking world. Copernicus used observations of the natural world to argue that the Earth spun around its own axis and orbited the Sun, rather than the Earth being fixed and at the center of the universe with Sun, Moon, and stars circling around it. Galileo Galileo's construction of a telescope and the observations he thereafter made with his telescope provided powerful evidence that the Copernican hypothesis was true even though the commonplace experience of all humanity from the very beginning of time was that the Earth was fixed and stationary. But the guy who brought it all together, the man who was able to make sense of pretty much everything, from the movement of the planets across the night sky to the flight of an arrow from a, from a bow, that guy was Sir Isaac Newton. His conception of the force of gravity, his three laws of motion, were such staggering advances in human awareness of how this universe worked, it was incredible. The reading public of Europe was captivated and astonished at his ability to explain the way things are. His mathematical equations made it possible to measure his ideas against nature and to predict the future. The, um, the movement of sun, moon, and planets were no longer the work of, of gods or supernatural beings, but rather it was manifestations of nature, of natural laws. The poet Alexander Pope wrote, wrote famously, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Uh, you, you might have learnt at school Newton's laws of motion. Where does this legal language come from? Laws. It comes from the laws of Moses. Just as God revealed, sorry, just as Moses revealed God's laws, so now Newton had revealed nature's laws. So then, moderns speak of the laws of nature, an incomprehensible idea, if not something that would, self, would be self-evidently ridiculous to the pre-modern mind. And in terms of how the birth of the modern mind affected Christian thinking, the impact was so enormous, it's difficult even to know where to start. But perhaps one thing we can talk about this morning, one important thing to know about, is deism. 
And there are reasons why it's important to know about deism. It continues to be a powerful force in Western culture. Deism is belief in a God who is utterly transcendent, but not <coughs> imminent. He's out there, but he's not in here. Sometimes called the watchmaker God or the set and forget God. Deism is the belief in a God who made the universe, bequeathing to the universe all of its principles and laws, everything it needed, then set it on its course like a toy maker might uh, make a toy clockwork train and then set it in motion just to watch from the outside it take its course. Although not actually a new thing in itself, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, all heresies are ancient heresies. Although not a new thing in itself, deism found a huge new audience in early modern Europe. Because now, um, they equated spiritual, revel spiritual revelation with superstition. It was untestable. Miracles, in particular, were an offense to the modern mind because, to the modern mind, it looked like God was breaking his own laws. But that's a thoroughly modern way of understanding miracles. The, the Bible suddenly took on the taste of mythology, even though, from a pre-modern perspective, the Bible is aggressively anti-mythological. So then, what, do, what, does the, what does the modern deist do with the Bible? Well, everything that requires a supernatural explanation has to go. Rip those pages out, and what you're left with is good, comfortable, nice stuff, but it's all common sense anyway, so I may as well just jettison the whole thing. Such enlightened people, though, weren't atheists. Atheism wasn't fashionable, nor was it intellectually credible? A first cause was needed. Probably the fiercest critic of the Christian faith during this time was a French writer, historian, and philosopher who wrote under the pen name Voltaire. Sickened by the intolerances of organized Christianity and disgusted by all the bickering and hypocrisy of the clergy, he did not hold back in his criticism. Uh, the Richard Dawkins or Stephen Fry of his day, for sure, but he wasn't an atheist. Uh, he, he once said, um, and I think there's a, another slide here. Um, yeah, I haven't, sorry, it's not in the notes. He once said that if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent one. But the God of the deists was, like them, rational and reasonable. A creature not of passions or of embarrassing and primitive emotions like anger or wrath, but rather a dispassionate, rational, logical, intellectual God. Like Spock. And I make that comparison intentionally. Many of America's founding fathers were deists, and deist religion, um, it suits activists who, who want to say things like, 
God helps those who help themselves. Whereas in actual fact, the truth is closer to God help those who help themselves. Deism is ideal for people who believe in God, but also want to take matters into their own hands, live their lives their way, help God out. People who have no time for prayer and who want to argue that this action or that action is manifest destiny, and yet at the same time promote morals, virtues, and family values. The appeal of deism continues for various reasons. And perhaps that explains why Christian churches today are often heavily contaminated with deist thought and assumptions. Don't expect God to actually speak to you. Don't expect God to answer your prayers. Don't expect Jesus to heal you except through doctors. Don't expect, don't expect. Uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds uh, sing a, a, a song called, it's a beautiful song, sing a song called Into My Arms, which includes the following lyrics. Um, the song begins, I don't believe in an interventionist God, but I know, darling, that you do. But if I did, I would kneel down and ask him not to intervene when it came to you, not to touch a hair on your head, to leave you as you are. And if he felt he had to direct you, then direct you into my arms. Into my arms, into my arms, is the repeated line of the chorus of this rather beautiful love song. Verse 2 begins, I don't believe in the existence of angels. But looking at you, I wonder if that's true. Uh, Nick Cave uh, um, considers himself a Jesus follower and actually is a passionate reader of the Bible. But he distrusts organized religion. He once said, I believe in God in spite of religion, not because of it. Typical modern Moderns are terrified of getting close to a personal God and terrified of their own unanswered questions about God's relationship with the evil that they themselves or perhaps their closest loved ones have experienced. Just keep them out there. Um, I was raised a modern, a very good modern. I was raised in a modern home, in a modern suburb, in a modern country. In the middle of a PhD in biochemistry, a thoroughly modern endeavor, I started reading the Bible, a shockingly pre-modern text. I read it secretly in my room, late at night, out of fear of discovery. As I read the New Testament, I came to the irrepressible, undeniable convictions that Jesus of Nazareth is whoever he says he is. Uh, I came to the conviction that I urgently needed to ask him for his forgiveness for my awful sins, and I desperately needed to surrender my life into his hands, into his arms, O oh Lord, into his arms. I, I suddenly had good news to share with my workmates in the lab. The Lordship of Jesus of Nazareth is testable, observable, 
reality. Th that was the gospel as I expressed it in thoroughly modern language. I used modern language, the language of science, to convey my newfound convictions to my fellow scientists. The lordship of Jesus of Nazareth is testable, observable reality. You have to cover your ears and shout. You have to expend energy to, to not see it. If you speak to him, he answers. If you pray to him, he saves you. If you trust him, it changes everything. And you can never trust him too much. The shock that was in store for me as a new Christian was discovering Christians who didn't believe that the Lordship of Jesus Christ was testable, observable truth. True, to be sure, but not something demonstrable, not something repeatable, not something observable. It, it still shocks me to encounter deist unbelief in Christian churches, but it no longer surprises me. So here's my question for you today. Do you believe that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is testable, observable reality? Do you believe that if you throw yourself on him and actually test what he has to say, do you believe that you will fall to the ground, hurt and damaged, never to do that again? Or do you believe that you'll be caught, caught by him lovingly, into his arms. Do you believe in an interventionist God? to it. 